I've asked myself a number of times uh, what I would have done if, if uh, I had to be involved uh, again. It was a very difficult choice. We had allegations, many of which we believe were credible, that these kids were being abused. We have a psychological report saying that indeed that was the case. We had tried everything we could to get the elders to cooperate and to register their births, to send their kids to school and the like. They refused to do so. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Judge Dean Pinellas has been a witness to history. In a career spanning three decades, the resident of Stowe, Vermont, served as Commissioner of Labor and Industry and then Legal Counsel to Governor Richard Snelling. It was in that role that he participated in one of Vermont's most controversial cases. In the 1984 raid at Island Pond, state police seized 112 children of members of the reclusive Northeast Kingdom Community Church on suspicion that the children were being abused. The case sparked outrage and national headlines and was quickly thrown out by a judge. Pinellas went on to a distinguished career as a Vermont trial judge. He then donned judges' robes in Kosovo and presided over war crimes tribunals. He's also taught about the rule of law in Russia, Kazakhstan, and Georgia. Pinellas has a new memoir, A Judge's Odyssey, From Vermont to Russia, Kazakhstan, and Georgia, then on to war crimes and organ trafficking in Kosovo. I began by asking Pinellas to recount the inside story of what happened in the infamous raid at Island Pond. You'll have to go back to 1982 or 1983 for the beginning of this saga. And uh, at the time, the Northeast Kingdom Community Church uh, was not sending the children of the community to school. They were not registering births and deaths. And uh, there was a great deal of uh, mystery surrounding the church, including some very serious concern about the children. And under their particular orthodoxy, uh, the children were routinely being beaten with uh, what you would call balloon sticks. And uh, certain defectors from the church uh, made credible claims that children were actually being abused on a regular basis. And so the state, particularly the child uh, protection agencies, got involved in that very heavily, uh, trying to, first of all, determine what exactly was happening and if there were abuse problems to do something about it. Uh, they found a closed door uh, and they were never able to get any definitive uh, information about what was really going on. But at the same time, they did have credible information from defectors. And over a period of time, this really developed a life of its own and it caught the attention of uh, Governor Snelling and many of his uh, top uh, secretaries, such as the Secretary of Health, um, Secretary of Administration, the Secretary of Public Safety and so forth. And it was a very hot issue in the governor's office at that time. And as you said, I was the uh, legal counsel to the governor. And uh, the time came after months and months of futile efforts to try to figure out what was going on and, and make some 
significant contact with the elders of the church, that those of us who were following this very closely decided that the time had come when we really had to move in and uh, rescue these children. And we had a very comprehensive psychological evaluation done by a very respected psychologist from Burlington who reviewed carefully all the information that had been developed, both documentary evidence and, and stories of abuse and, and whatnot. And he determined that all the children in the community were at risk of both uh, uh, mental and physical abuse. So the time finally came when we had been banging our heads against the wall for a number of months, if, if not years, that those of us uh, who were closely following it, uh, the Attorney General's office and the other offices I mentioned, we made a combined recommendation to the governor that uh, we needed to move in and rescue these children. We sought a warrant to do so. A judicial was, warrant was issued by uh, Judge Joseph uh, Wolchek. Based on that warrant, we mobilized uh, a team consisting of state police, social workers, medical doctors and the like to go to the uh, Northeast Kingdom Community Church, basically to be honest on the cover of darkness and to uh, remove the children from their homes, take them to Newport, Vermont, where the uh, county seat was and to initiate judicial proceedings with a view towards uh, obtaining judicial uh, detention orders for each of the children so they can be uh, checked out by medical doctors, psychologists, and, uh, and social workers. How do you, uh, removing, you know, 112 children from perhaps almost as many unwilling families, what did that actually entail? I, I would imagine some of these parents would have tried to physically stop you? Well, as it turned out, the number 112 was far more than we anticipated. We had no idea how many children were actually in that community. So that caught us off guard. But uh, most of the families were, uh, I would say, cooperative. You know, obviously they were shocked to have a police officer knock on their door at six o'clock in the morning and, and demand uh, removal of their children. But uh, there weren't any physical altercations. Uh, and I would say the elders of the community, the parents of the children were obviously upset, angry and, and so forth, but not uh, uh, physically interfering with, uh, with, with the effort to remove the children. So you, uh, how did you physically transport these kids to Newport and, and what did you do with them once they were there? Well, there was uh, a very significant contingent of people who were involved in this, uh, this interdiction, this intervention. Uh, there were a number of state police. I think there were 90 state police involved. There were 50 social workers involved. There were medical doctors involved. So uh, we had the numbers, if, if I can put it that way. And uh, it was as straightforward as knocking on doors. And I think there were 50, uh, 20 residences knocking on the doors. Uh, the officers introduced themselves and uh, removed the children. What did you find when on examination of the kids? Well, that's when, uh, as you said, the 
situation began to go sideways. Uh, uh, judge Wolchek had been the judge who issued the warrant. And Judge Wolchek, uh, anticipating that a number of judges would be required in Newport to process all these cases, contacted the chief administrative, ju administrative judge at the time, uh, Tom Hayes. And uh, Tom Hayes, who I think it's fair to say was an arch rival of Governor Snelling, uh, removed Wolchek from any further proceedings and uh, said he was going to appoint his own people. And his own people or his own person turned out to be uh, Judge Frank Mahady. And all of these cases in Newport, when they came before the, the court, came before Judge Mahady. And Judge Mahady uh, basically summarily dismissed all of the, uh, all of the uh, uh, detention requests. None of the children were taken into detention. So you didn't find any evidence of abuse? We never got to that formal process. Uh, but I think it's probably fair to say that there was uh, nothing particularly obvious. Now, going back several months, if not uh, more than that, 18 specific children had been identified in the community as having been physically abused. And we had the names of those children uh, and, and the nature of, of the abuse. And that was something that was uh, factored into the psychologist's analysis. Uh, but uh, we did not discover any uh, signs of, of physical abuse that I recall. Now, psychological abuse, mental abuse, that's a different situation. It's not obvious based on a quick uh, perusal of someone's uh, someone's body, if you will, whether there's mental or physical abuse. So, but yes, we, we never uh, were able to determine that. This case blew up in spectacular and high profile fashion. It was, you know, garnered headlines in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Boston Herald. It was a major black eye for Governor Snelling at the time. Um, I wonder if, you know, with the benefit of 40 years of hindsight and whatever you may have learned in that interim period, I don't know if you've you've since found out more if any of those who were then children, now adults, have, have actually shed any more light on it. Would you have done anything differently? Uh, first of all, I want to just comment on, on your statement that it was a black eye to, to Snelling, certainly amongst certain uh, segments of the community it was indeed but there were a lot there was a lot of support for that uh, we had a lot of support for for intervening uh, and that was voiced in letters to the editor and op-ed columns and the like I mean it was it was highly controversial highly uh, critical highly uh, criticized among certain people, uh, including lawyers and people I knew and respected and the like, but there was also a fair amount of support for it. Uh, a long time has passed. Uh, the community no longer exists there. And I've asked myself a number of times uh, what I would have done if, if uh, I had to be involved uh, again. It was a very difficult choice. We had allegations many of which we believe were credible that these kids were being abused. 
we have psychological reports saying that indeed that was the case. We had tried everything we could to get the elders to cooperate and to register their births, to send their kids to school and the like. They refused to do so. Uh, so we were faced with a very difficult challenge. And uh, at approximately this same time, there was a, a case in, I believe it was Michigan. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how similar it was, but I, I think it involved a, a remote community that didn't really open itself up to outside scrutiny. And the child had died in that community, I think from a beating. And the question was, would I rather be defending the action we took where it was certainly traumatic and I won't deny that it was it was very traumatic for all the people involved on the, on the other side of things would I rather be defending that under those circumstances or would I rather be defending having done nothing resulting in let's say the death of a child now that was hypothetical there was no death of a child but that was kind of the decision we were facing at the time right and we decided i agreed that uh, we had to to move in and, and try to remove those children uh, as i say in the book if i were presented with the same situation now i would probably make the, the same decision might process it differently uh, but i think when all is said and done i might uh, might make exactly the same decision hmm. well let's move from the northeast kingdom of vermont to uh, Georgia, Kosovo, Russia, and Kazakhstan, which is uh, as your career as a judge evolved, you end up going overseas. Um, talk about how that happened, how you ended up being an international judge. Well, I should first back up and say that uh, when I was growing up, my dad did a lot of travel, including international travel. And when I met my uh, my now wife, uh, her dad was from Sweden and uh, her family would go back to Europe periodically. And, and I learned a lot about foreign travel through them, even though I'd never done any foreign travel myself. And then in my junior year, uh, summer of my junior year of college, a friend and I spent the summer basically bumming around Europe and that was eye-opening for me. And so over the course of my judicial career, I always had in the back of my mind the possibility of trying to combine law with, with travel, law with living and learning about different cultures and different societies. And the first opportunity I had for that was in 1996, when, uh, again, it just sort of fell in my lap. I was invited to uh, participate in a uh, trip to Russia with the Vermont Karelia Rule of Law Project which was a project that was basically initiated by Governor Cunin, uh, who established a relationship with the head of the parliament in the Russian uh, province of, of Karelia. This was in 1996. So I participated in that delegation. Uh, Justice Don, John Dooley was really the head of the project at the time. Uh, we put on a mock trial for our Russian counterparts. Uh, it was very exciting, completely different culture. We were pres presenting information about jury trials that they were particularly interested in. Uh, so I came back from that trip and, and 
had no other international experiences except for personal travel for another decade. But after I retired from the bench in 2005, the Vermont bench, I became actively involved, made a number of trips to Russia with the same organization, the Vermont Karelia Rule of Law Project. And uh, I then, because I really enjoyed the work, really thought we were accomplishing something, uh, I applied for a job with the American Bar Association Rule of Law uh, uh, Institute in uh, the Republic of Georgia, which was a former Soviet Republic. I got the job. They were looking for a jury trial expert. I fit the bill. I'd done a hundred or more jury trials during my Vermont career. Spent a year with the ABA in, uh, in the country of Georgia. And that led to my next assignment and probably my most important and most interesting assignment as an international criminal judge with the uh, European Union rule of law mission in Kosovo. And in Kosovo, I uh, had a number of uh, uh, very high profile, very uh, politically sensitive cases involving war crimes, judicial corruption, uh, drug trafficking, murder, uh, and the like. And, Remind uh, our listeners um, what and where Kosovo is um, and, and how it came to have this special status where you were deployed there. Well, Kosovo is in the Balkans, in Southern Europe, uh, to try to simplify a very complex situation. It was part of uh, the country of Serbia, but it had autonomy because of very different cultural and religious and linguistic uh, aspects of the respective population. Serbians were Orthodox Christians. They spoke uh, uh, the Cyrillic language. Uh, uh, the predominant population of Kosovo was Albanian. They were Muslim. They spoke the Albanian language and so forth. And the two societies did not mix particularly well. And, and but, we should probably back up one step further and explain Serbia had been part of Yugoslavia. And this all resulted from the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Exactly. Uh, Serbia, uh, there was a war, the, the Bosnian War, uh, the, the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia grew out of the Bosnian War. That died down with the Dayton Accords. Uh, thereafter, though, the war broke out between Serbia and Kosovo. Kosovo had autonomy that was then denied. There was a, a decade of, uh, of uh, uh, intense uh, Serbian uh, invasion, uh, not invasion, not physically, because they were, they were there politically, but uh, Serbia basically took over Kosovo for a decade, took over the education process, took over the governmental administrative process, took over the educational process. Albanian kids were required to go to Kosovo, to uh, Serbian schools and learn the language, which they detested. So they set up all these parallel organizations. And during that time, the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was a guerrilla Albanian army uh, 
rose up out of the ashes, so to speak, and became a very uh, significant force in the relationship between those two countries. And it, and it engaged in terrorist acts. It murdered government officials. It murdered Kosovo, or I should say Serbian governmental officials and the like. And then Mr. Milosevic, who had become the president of uh, the uh, Yugoslav Republic, what left of it, uh, engaged in ethnic cleansing. And that term, I think, uh, developed out of that war. And almost a million Kosovar Albanians were forced over the borders into Macedonia and uh, Albania and to some Western countries. And because of the ethnic cleansing, which at the time, this was 1999, it had worldwide attention. This was the biggest international event going on at that time. And because of ethnic cleansing, the Clinton administration, spearheaded by Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, encouraged uh, NATO to intervene and succeeded in getting NATO to intervene. NATO intervened. Uh, 78 days of bombing. Uh, and after the 78 days, uh, uh, Milosevic capitulated. And uh, Kosovo then became sort of a UN dependent. And you became a judge um, adjudicating some of the fallout of the wars and the human rights abuses. Just given us an example of what your most memorable case there and, and how you dealt with it. Let me just back up very brief, briefly and say that the United Nations, when they had the mandate to administer Kosovo, uh, determined that the local judiciary, the local uh, judges and prosecutors and court staff and so forth could not possibly handle the war crimes cases because first of all, they'd been out of business for basically a decade during the Serbian uh, rule, and uh, they would obviously be biased. So the UN came up with a, a protocol to hire international judges, international investigators, international prosecutors to handle all of these cases. And I became one of those. And I became one of those after Kosovo declared independence in 2008. That had never been resolved during the UN mandate, whether Kosovo was separate from Serbia or still part of Serbia. And that could not be worked out by the UN. So unilaterally, Kosovo declared independence. They continued the model of international judges, international prosecutors, and I became one of them. Uh, probably a number of cases stand out of my mind. One was the war crimes case of uh, uh, a man named called, uh, called Fatmir Limai, who had been a commander with the Kosovo Liberation Army back in the day. And he was charged with committing war crimes against not only Serbians, but with uh, Albanian collaborators, who were collaborators who were Kosovar Albanians who collaborated with Serbians. So there was a lot of revenge after the war ended in uh, 1999. So that was an interesting prosecution that involved this man, Limai, who by then was a very popular uh, politician. He was a governmental minister uh, and had quite a political following. 
And that case involved not only Mr. Lemay individually, but nine others who were alleged to be involved in this particular uh, war crime. Uh, so there were 10 defendants. The crime itself involved a detention center where a guard had taken very copious notes of everyone who came and went through this detention center. And at one point, a number of people, according to this guard who took notes, a number of people, Serbians and collaborators were marched into a field and summarily executed. One of whom was executed by a scythe of a neck. Uh, this stayed dormant for a number of years until this particular witness this particular guard uh, began to fear for his safety because he believed that Mr. Lemai and some of the others uh, involved with the detention center had gotten word that he had kept a diary. So he went to the police, disclosed what he knew to the police. Uh, they conducted a forensic evaluation. They found the bodies buried where the witness said they were. Uh, they found one of the bodies with obvious uh, wounds to his neck consistent with the scythe. They found the scythe buried with this group of uh, individuals and uh, the prosecution uh, developed out of that. Now, you have to read the book, though, to find out what happened. <laughs> All right. And we're, we're running short on time. So I want to move to um, at the end of your book, you talk about the Kosovo precedent that you believe is in play in the current uh, invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin and Russia. Yes. What's the connection between Kosovo and Russia? Well, if you go back to uh, 1999 when NATO invaded to try to stop ethnic cleansing, uh, Russia was extremely upset about that. And they basically said, you know, uh, this is going to come back to haunt the West. So time passed. Uh, the UN administered Kosovo for a number of years. And then in 2008, Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia. And Russia and Mr. Putin said, you're making a big mistake. This is really going to uh, work to your detriment over time, this unilateral declaration of independence. And sure enough, several months later, it did work to the West's detriment. In August of 2008, when uh, I was working in Georgia, the Russians invaded Georgia, the country of Georgia, which had been a former Soviet Republic. And they invaded under the uh, pretext that uh, people in two separate Georgian provinces had been abused by the government of Georgia. And Russia had supplied uh, passports to a lot of these people in these two rest of provinces. And uh, uh, push came to shove at one point where the Georgian military felt they had to intervene to, intervene to stop some, uh, some uh, activity in South Ossetia, one of those provinces. And the, and the Russians took that as an invitation. They moved through the Roki Tunnel uh, on the Russian side of the mountains into, uh, into Georgia and uh, basically uh, recognized the sovereignty of these two breakaway provinces, South Ossetia and Georgia. And they said, look, if it works for Kosovo, it can work for these two provinces. These two provinces to this day still claim their independence. 
So fast forward from 2008 to 2014, when Russia went into Crimea, Crimea issued a declaration of independence from Ukraine. And in the declaration of independence, it is written that this declaration is based on the Kosovo precedent. If it's good for Kosovo, good for Georgia, it's also good for Crimea. And then fast forward further to 2022, after eight years of uh, fighting in the uh, uh, Donbass region of Ukraine, Russia intervened in February of 2022 and immediately declared or accepted the Declaration of Independence of Luhansk and, uh, and Donetsk, two provinces in that part of uh, Ukraine. So if you can draw a straight line from 1999 to 2008 to 2014 <laughs> to 2022. Mm. Uh, I think uh, uh, Mr. Putin and his, and his allies uh, took advantage of the what I call the Kosovo president, precedent and uh, and made it work on their behalf. People debate whether there was any precedent. Most people from a Western pr perspective say, this was not a precedent. We were, the West intervened to stop a humanitarian crisis. It wasn't an open license to accept the declaration of independence of any uh, province in any country that wants to become independent. But I think Mr. Putin has uh, treated it that way. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, if you want more of this story, uh, you'll find uh, many other stories of uh, justice from Vermont to uh, the rest of the world in Dean Pinellas' book, A Judge's Odyssey. Uh, Judge Dean Pinellas, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. It was my pleasure.